simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey everyone, Al Martin here. Welcome back to the series, Making Data Simple. Today I have Rob Thomas joining me. Rob is the General Manager of Analytics at IBM. Hey Rob, how you doing? Doing great, Al. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> uh, so Rob, uh, the theme here, as I said, is making data simple. We went back and forth on a topic that best surrounds what we want to focus on. We landed on making data simple because... Uh, I want to talk about analytics. I want to talk about client experience. I want to talk, talk about data. All those seem deeply complex and somewhat boring. So based on simplicity and, and making it fun, we, we landed on making data simple. But what that essentially means is we'll talk about anything interesting. Basically, the rules are there are no rules. And um, we'll, just, we'll just go and have like a water cooler conversation. I'm, I'm not a good interviewer. I just, want to, I just want to have a chat. That's all. If you're good for it. Yeah, that sounds good. And I think that's a good headline topic. So what's interesting now is if you think about the last decade, while we have a lot of new technologies, there's been major innovation in open source. It really has not gotten fundamentally easier for users to get to answers. So that's why I think it's a good theme. This idea of make data simple is nobody's really cracked that in the industry yet, but I'm starting to see signs that we're getting closer to that, which I think is encouraging. Great. So we brought you in for a lot of different reasons, but two things above all. One is your experience in analytics and all things data. Secondly, you've gone farther than most in writing two books, the latest one being The End of Tech Companies and the previous one, Big Data Revolution. You, you should know that I've read both. <laughs> I contributed to both. Uh, so hope you got rich and your charity got rich just as well. Uh, I like the, the stories in, in The Big Data Revolution on The End of Tech Companies that was to me was kind of like a Jerry Maguire mission statement in a good way. Uh, and, and that's the way I termed it. So I got, a, I got a, several questions on that one. Yeah. So let me start though, just for the audience, you've held many roles in, in your career. Can you quickly talk to your experience, interests, passions? What, what brings you to your current role? Yeah, I, I started with IBM and consulting and somebody gave me advice right when I joined IBM, they said, Try to find a way to get multiple experiences with multiple companies really fast. That was good advice. It sounds basic, but it was good advice. Consulting definitely gives you that opportunity. The main thing I learned from consulting is that most companies don't know what they should be doing. And I don't mean that as a negative. It's not that they're not smart people. It's that they get within their role, their business model, their customers, and it's really hard to think outside of the organization. The greatest value you can add in consulting is to bring a different perspective to how companies should be thinking about their challenges. So learned a lot from that, went to some different roles then in IBM, microelectronics, then came into software doing M&A for a number of years, and then um, you know spent most of that time in analytics. So a few different things, but you know the big learning for me all along the way has been um, an outsider perspective can really help companies in terms of figuring out where they want to get going. Great. So the first book, um, I said I already enjoyed the stories. They were great, and I have to admit I've stolen and, and continue to use several of them in the presentations that I have. What compelled you to write the first book, and why did you start with the big data revolution? You know, I never had a goal to be an author, so it was kind of a fluke, but sometimes opportunity presents itself as flukes. I had actually written a blog post. I don't even remember what the title was at this point, 
and out of the blues, I get an email from somebody at Wiley, which is um, top 10 publisher in the world based in the UK. And she said, Hey, we, I came across your blog post. I think that would make a great book. Are you interested in doing that? I never thought of it, but based on that, I said, sure. Kind of started the process, built an outline. And my main thesis was everybody knows they should be doing something around the topic of big data, but most people don't know exactly what it is. And the best way to learn is from stories. So I kind of set out to put it in the, in terms of some different examples, different industries. Um, and so it was an interesting, interesting process. It was a lot more difficult than I bargained as part of the research I was doing to find some stories. I, I ended up in touch with a guy, um, Oxford professor, and I was interviewing him because he's done some work on actuaries in the past. And he said, through the interview process, he said, hey, are you interested in co-author for the book? And he got me at a moment of weakness because I was dying for somebody to help at that point. <laughs> so uh, he ended up being the, the co-author, Patrick McSherry is his name. Um, so learned a lot from him in the process as well. Well, stories are definitely your, you do them well. Uh, big data revolution, I, you know, to oversimplify, you know, I see it as industries transforming with data and then finding answers through trends or pattern recognition. What is your much better definition? I think that's a great definition. This, the company that sticks out to me the most that I profiled in the book is a company called CoStar, which most people haven't heard of, but they have basically gathered all of the data in the world on commercial real estate. And instead of just being a data provider, like, you know, a Dun and Bradstreet who pretty much just provides data, CoStar had the insight to say, we can actually build data products based on all the data that we've collected. And they've really built, you know, knock on wood, it appears to be a recession proof business because anybody that's trying to do anything in real estate, whether it's building new commercial real estate, building new, acquiring, renting, leasing, if you want any data on what's happening, you really pretty much have to go to CoStar and to consume one of their products. And so it's not just the data assets they collected, but it's the way that they built into the products that were consumable by anybody. Back to your point on making data easy. I thought it was one of the best examples I've seen of a company that has really converted this idea of data into a strategic asset. Did you, um, you know, one thing I was curious on is whether, did you find when you did the research, did you find what you expected or you were, were you surprised? And I guess it was what, couple years now, now do you look back and you say, did you get anything wrong? So two different questions there. Definitely got a lot of things wrong. You know, my main learning from the book is it's hard to write a book that is based in a period of time. It's a lot more efficient to write a, a timeless book <laughs> because then you know nothing changes and the lessons are the same. Look, I mean, as I got into the more technical portions of that book, a lot of what I wrote, wrote about was Hadoop. There was no mention of Spark or any of you know the modern things that you see in and around big data. And so I guess I, I'm not sure I got it wrong, but certainly it became um, irrelevant quickly because we're in a market that changes so fast. That being said, I think the stories of transformation, how companies move from one to the next, some of that is still playing out. I mean, one of the one of the whole chapters was on actuaries and how I thought data would 
would really reinvent the insurance industry and what it meant to be an actuary. And I would actually say that hasn't happened yet. That's still very much in the mode that it's always been in because it's, it's a cultural challenge more than it is a technology challenge. So I think some things are now out of date. Some things are still yet to happen. Um, but that's part of what you learn in the process. So, you know, to that point, you know, what surprises me is that uh, we're still seemingly in a very early trajectory of all things data. Uh, speaking of real estate, I listened to a podcast yesterday in a company called VTS. I don't know what they, they stand for, but they're transforming asset management and real estate leasing. The owner was was in software, then went into real estate and found that they're still all using spreadsheets. So this is what he what he started. And, and then if I could go on, you know, IoT, by example, I think that's largely untapped. I, you know, I, I've, I hear about these smart buildings. I travel all over the world. I've not went in one true smart building that I can recall. Connected cars still on the, the very, I mean, the very early onset, I guess. And I think those that are doing some IoT are really aggregating in data lakes versus performing analytics on the edge, which all this heard me to do this podcast. But back to your point, are we still like in the very infancy, infancy of this? Yeah, look, if you use a baseball analogy, I think the reality is we're probably in the second inning of how data really becomes a strategic asset and a competitive weapon. You know, the first couple innings was about how the economics have changed, so it's easier to collect massive amounts of data. Uh, It's easier to analyze large amounts of data, but none of that has anything to do with actually, back to your theme, of making it easy, making it consumable, turning it into better business decisions. That's why I said I think we're probably in in the second inning, so, so very early. You know, I'm really encouraged um, about the opportunities in machine learning. Uh, we, we, we tend to, you know, data has always been in the past. We're always looking backwards to look forwards. Meanwhile, we're oriented to the future. So I think that is probably the biggest game changer, at least I see in the near future. I don't know if you see it the same way. You know, I think all these things take a certain amount of patience. People forget this. If you use the automobile industry as an example, I mean, the first automobile was driven down the streets in Detroit in 1896. And it was 20 years, almost 25 years later, when Henry Ford developed the Model T and actually brought that to a mass market. So it was basically a gestation period of 25 years to go from the first, you know, the first example of success to something that was adopted at scale for a mass market. And that's where we are on data. You mentioned machine learning. I think we're early days on that. I think the difference here is what took the automobile 25 years is going to happen in a period of five years for things like machine learning and data. AI, that's much further out. But machine learning is real, and that's going to play out really fast. And I think the biggest cultural adjustments that most organizations have to make is if they think that they're, this is something they're going to be able to figure out over the next 10 years, they're going to be left behind. They're going to be irrelevant. So the pace is definitely increasing. Great. So let's pivot to the end of tech companies. End of tech companies. Uh, is that a catchy title or, or do you believe we're truly in a, in a, in a paradigm shift where traditional companies and tech companies are now going to be synonymous? Uh, I do think it's a catchy title. I think that's got <laughs> which has been good, but I think it's effective because it's true. 
I mean, we've always lived in this world where, you know, you're either a tech company or you're not. And that's been assumed and there's certain attributes and, oh, it's great to be a tech company because you can grow really fast, but you have to reinvent yourself every few years. That is now on the doorstep of every company, regardless of what industry you're in, which is same rate of pace and change. Um, you know, every year, the, you know, the S&P 500, 20 companies drop out at a minimum. So it's, that's never been the case before where it's this rapid of change. And so the idea behind the end of tech companies was every company, step one is you have to recognize that you have to become a technology company. That's step one. Just recognize it. Step two is to understand the implications of that and what it means for you. And then step three is to think about how are you going to reskill your workforce to live in that world? And that's what every company is facing. You know, I use, you know, a few different examples in this, but it's even, you know, it's, it's industries like agriculture where you would say that's the last place that you're going to see massive adoption of technology. I wrote about that a little bit in the first book. The second book kind of brings that to a fevered pitch to say, look, it's actually happening now. So I think it's very real. The end of tech companies is more about what does this mean culturally for a company and how are companies going to adapt in, the, in an environment that they've never seen before? You know, one thing you reference Warren Buffett in the book, and I, I, I follow disciples of Warren Buffett, not nearly as well, but uh, I try to, I try to follow it. And the interesting thing is he talks about the four M's of investing management mode, uh, margin of safety and meaning. And for the longest time, well, still his still mantra is, Hey, I got to understand that business end to end. That's the meaning piece. And he would not invest in tech companies for the longest time. I mean, he used to joke with uh, Bill Gates that, no, I just don't understand it. That's your business. I'm not getting in that business. But the interesting thing, and that's what I thought of with your reference to end of tech companies and Buffett, is that since then he's invested in Apple, he's invested in IBM, and could, so to your point, it could lend itself to what you're suggesting that, uh, you know, everything's a tech company and maybe everything's not, but they're all kind of blending in together. And, you know, so, you know, I guess that's not so mysteriously because most, most companies are coming closer to the client now. Yeah. I mean, I think what's changed is that, so obviously the economics have changed. So it used to be impossible for the average company to make big investments in software or IT. Obviously with the advent of cloud, it's a lot more accessible to anybody. So that's definitely changed. Secondly is skills are more available on the market. There's a lot of people now that know how to, you know, write code, develop code. There's people that are building new skills in that. Um, that doesn't mean everybody has all the skills that they need, but it's certainly more accessible than it was even at the time that I came into the workforce, you know, a number of years back. So the bottom line is a lot has changed about the environment. And now companies have to decide. One is, again, I'll go back to the where I said, you have to one, accept that that's the world that you're in now. And then two, you have to figure out what you're going to do about it. And then three, you have to say is what does my workforce need to evolve to in order to compete in this environment? That's going to be easy for some companies. It's going to be hard for others, but it's something everybody has to do. So I got a few more specific questions and they're kind of around your, you, you talked to four macro shocks. Let me list them here. Cause I think they're good. Number one, the market is undergoing a digital transformation. Number two, the internet is democratizing traditional advantages. Number three, the price of compute has plummeted. And number four, the skills of success in many professions and industry are changing. But one of the questions I had with, within some of that is that you talk to new measurements 
and the value, value of human capital. And you made a specific point uh, to call out enterprise value per employee and revenue per employee as you see as metrics, as clear litmus tests in terms of whether your, your company is heading in the right direction. Can you expand upon that? Is that the same as the traditional E to R measures or, or is it looking at the industry completely different or looking at your company completely different? I think the point is a lot of, look, a lot of companies kind of, I'd say their, their success is a multiple of the number of people they have. You certainly see that in traditional consulting businesses or, or labor-based businesses. And then you ask the question, well, what happens though when you start to automate a lot of those things? It doesn't mean that people go away. Actually, that people become more valuable. But the leverage that you get out of the average person goes up dramatically. And so the reason I did that was really just to get companies to think about how do you get more leverage out of your workforce? It can't be about, you know, my productivity is driven by how many hours everybody works. And that's why I kind of went into you have to reinvent how you're working, look at the tools that you're using as a company, because you've got to get greater leverage. There's a, there's a finite amount of time in anybody's week. You've got to get maximum leverage out of your employees, and that comes down to your business model. So one of the shocks I talked about was distribution. When a, when a company's primary route to market is through face-to-face sellers, feet on the street, then, then by definition, your upside is limited by the number of people you can hire. That's very different than when if you say, look, we're going to do 60% of our go-to-market through feet on the street, through people, and we're going to do 40% through the internet. Then you have a digital channel, and the leverage on a digital channel is unlimited because you're open 24-7. The good news is the internet never needs to sleep. They never need to eat. All the you know, internet just wants to work. Um, so it's really rethinking distribution because that changes the economics per employee. And that's really hard for most companies to do. Um, you know, I, t- I was talking to an investor a couple weeks ago and I said to him, I said, the question you should ask at every board meeting is what are we doing to change how we get to market? Can we sell our products through the internet? And if you're not a software company, most companies will say that's impossible, but the reality is some of their competitors are doing it already. You know, um, that leads me to directly into a question that I had. Um, you, you talked to the best business models for the internet era being high volume and low price. And then you have a company in my mind, like Walmart, that could say, check, got it. But they've depended on a differentiated distribution as well as low price for a long time. So I guess what I'm saying is while they have high volume, low costs, are they losing their differentiator? in distribution that, that makes them or puts them in trouble or in peril as a brick and mortar store with the advent of the cloud. You know, you got to give Walmart a lot of credit. They've kind of reinvented themselves through the year, maybe not in the digital means we're talking about, but I mean, they used to not sell groceries and now they've become the number one grocer in America as an example. So they've definitely proven an ability to do different things. I think the opportunity for them is how do they, how do they merge online and offline worlds? When they launched Walmart.com, they ran that as a separate business, um, separate financials. They kind of they intentionally kept it separate, which I think was the right decision at the time. But clearly, the opportunity is to merge the online and offline worlds. That's that's clearly what's behind the Amazon Whole Foods acquisition, and I think that's the opportunity for Walmart. And look, we're we're rooting for them. Um, I think they'll figure it out because they've always figured it out. 
So in, in retooling and reskilling, retooling, I get, I agree, tools like Slack and change a culture, and I truly believe that. In terms of reskilling, though, I, I know that like the media is getting some play with ML and AI eliminating jobs, which I, I feel to be garbage. I don't know what you think about that. I think it will absolutely change jobs, though. So if you're going to school right now, coming out of high school, by example, and you're reading the end of tech companies, if you, what would you advise your, your own kids to do? What discipline would they head in? Look, I think everybody should learn how to write code. It doesn't mean you have to spend your job as a developer. But, you know, back when we were in school, the, you know, the fundamental, the, I'd call it the core skill was learn how to type. I think now that um, that core skill is learn how to code, not because you're going to be a coder, but just understanding it as a discipline is really important. I think it's a great time to be coming out of school because if you know anything about coding, modern technologies, there's going to be a job for you. So there's actually kind of an inherent job security if you choose if you choose the right thing. Um, so I think it's a really good time for that. You know, my point on reskilling is I think everybody, regardless of where you are in your career, you've got to have a curiosity about what's happening and a willingness to go learn new things. And there's no better time for that. You know, whether the topic is machine learning, Python, software development, you know, just to name three. I mean, anybody, just by putting the effort into it, you can become smarter than 80% of the people around you on those three topics. And that's going to give you a lot of job security. So I think people just got to have the curiosity to go learn that. So I had several questions today. I wanted to talk about the vital, seven vital signs that you have, op, or how to optimize capital allocation in the maker era. But I'm going to, to ask you this question, and, and this was interesting to me. You have actually referenced the innovator's dilemma, and it's what I, you know, I, I've read and listened to some of my favorite talks around Clay, Clayton Christensen about disruptive innovation. And the reason I guess I like him so well is that he talks about how leaders, great leaders, can essentially give their business away. And I felt like that was what you were kind of referring to at the end. And I'd like to quote something to get your reaction to it. He says, you know, based on, you know, essentially being good leaders and giving your, your business away, he says, the reason is that good management itself was the root cause. Managers played the game the way it was supposed to be played. The very decision-making and resource allocation processes that are key to the success of established companies are the very processes that reject disruptive technologies. Talks about carefully listening to your customers, tracking competitors, uh, investing resources to design, higher quality, etc. You know, it's almost like you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. My point is, is man, how can you avoid those traps? Being big companies that are doing well. And stay on the right side and continue to reinvent yourself. Unfortunately, for most companies, it requires a crisis, which is unfortunate. And part of what I was trying to get at in the book was a crisis has arrived, whether you know it or not, because every company has to evolve to this new world. And so I hope most companies don't wait for the crisis, but sometimes that's what it takes. What I do like about Clay Christensen's work is his, you know, his whole mantra is he's going to give you um, a theory and then you can think about how that applies in your world. He's not providing recipes. He's not saying this is how you solve the problem. He's saying, you know, this is the basis or a theory for how you could solve the problem. You have to think about how that applies to you. And I think that's a really important point for everybody to remember. There is no recipe for becoming a tech company or surviving in this. It's going to be different for every single company. 
Um, but I was hoping to give enough tools or stories that then companies could apply that in, in their world because it's going to be different for everybody. Fantastic. So can I just get a quick lightning round with you? Just okay. a few, few questions. Number one is I see all profits from your book are going to charity called Domus, I think. Yeah, Domus is the name. I started working with them a while ago. They, uh, it's basically for children that don't have all the opportunities that some of us had, getting them through school and helping them learn how to earn a livable wage. So it's not trying to send them all to MIT. It's how do we get them on a path to where they can earn a livable wage, which I thought was a great mission. Fantastic. All right. People should check that out. We'll have it in the show notes. What are your daily habits you find successful? Like exercising, love reading, try to write a little bit every day. may not make the light of day, but it's a good way to think. What, um, you know, I think it is a great time to learn. Follow up quick question on that. I feel like there's so much information out there to learn. Unlike never before, how do you kind of create sanity around it and don't get overwhelmed by all the material? I mean, how do you keep focus? It's difficult. I do love Twitter. I think Twitter is underrated as a way to learn, but you have to be really careful about who, there's way too much noise on it. So you have to be curate who you follow um, and then focus, you know, figuring a few topics or a few people that you want to learn from or learn about. uh, Focus is key to learning. All right. Two more favorite leadership book. Urban Meyer's book, a football coach called above the line is actually really good. Surprised me. It's really good. What, What are you reading right now? Um, I just finished a couple. I just, I just read a book about guy, a guy that trains people in CrossFit, which I thought was kind of interesting. The name escapes me, but I'll send it to you later. You can add it to the notes. Um, that's the most recent book I read. Fair enough. Hey, you've been a great sport, man. Is there anything else we didn't address that you wanted to get out? No, I appreciate you doing this. I think you know, to go back to where we started, it's really hard to make things simple in the current uh, in the current environment but i think that's probably a superpower so i would encourage everybody to think about that anything you're doing so everybody as i close i want to say well i want to say this to you as well uh, rob is that having the ability to be an entrepreneur within a big company like ibm is unique and i greatly value that that's one of the reasons why i'm here and i think it's one of the things that you foster and promote is change so thank you and, and thank for your thank you for your insights today Folks, everybody, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, wheels up. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and